0: This podcast is being recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to the Elders past and present and acknowledge the ongoing connection to land, waters and culture. Colonization and genocide are ongoing process that is still happening in this land to this very day. Sovereignty was never ceded and this always was and always will be Aboriginal land. <laughs>
1: Hey everybody, welcome back to OzPol SnackPod, the podcast where you get to hang out with two of Australia's foremost political nobodies, myself, Zach Snack, and my co-host. Hey, I'm Noon. We are also the official podcast of the OzPol Shitposting Facebook group, so if you like OzPol and Shitposting, head over to, head over to Facebook and look us up. Um, nice to be back here with you again, Noon. Always a pleasure. As always um and it's always a pleasure to welcome new patrons to the snack pack thank you jackson for signing up and thank you jam for upping your pledge there's a special snacky treat on its way in the mail or at least it will be soon um as soon as i get a mask and go to the post office i'll arrange that for you uh noon you wanted to do a quick little update on everybody's favorite by-election
0: yeah well uh last week we recorded um a day earlier than normal, so we kind of missed a bunch of breaking news and some of it we're going uh, you 're going to go into in a lot of detail in a minute zach but um uh, the uh, Eden monero by election happened uh last last week on Saturday. Um, we covered Eden Monero a month ago or so in in great detail it 's our Eden Monero bite selection episode, so if you 're interested, you can go back and get a bit more analysis on you know what was going on there and who the characters are. Uh, Labour retained the seat, uh, which on some level is kind of unsurprising. There was a pretty big swing against them. Um, so they, they lost about 3% um, because the sitting member was very popular. But Christy McBain, as uh, the Labour candidate, has been um, elected. So anyway, that's happened now. Uh, yeah, and I just wanted to yeah, catch our listeners up on that. Probably you've all heard about it. But yeah, it's a uh, big little political news this week. So
1: It's a good politician name, Christy McBain.
0: There's been a lot of good McBain memes on Simpsons against the Liberals. Um,
1: I have I have no doubt, yeah. And, like, you know, nothing against Fiona Cotvoice. Well, plenty of things against Fiona Cotvoice. Uh, she's a conservative, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and we are, when we did our Eaton Monaro Bite Selections episode, sorry, Monero, um, I was like, yeah, you know, for a Liberal she seems okay. And then over the last couple of weeks it's been like, hey, she's kind of a climate denier and, hey, she's probably a homophobe, which neither yep. of those things are surprising considering that she's a Liberal candidate. But anyway uh if you're on a, on a lesser of two evils front look i'll take McBain any day
0: yep uh before we move on i just wanted to uh tell listeners i'm recording this from inside a very thin tin shed and the rain has just started so uh hopefully it's going to be light and you won't hear it but um if there's like a loud constant hammering going on it's probably just the weather
1: yeah. uh, i mean obviously uh, a, a material, a, a recording studio constructed entirely from it's extremely thin, loud material, is the ideal. Yeah. Um, nothing authentic the best for us yeah. here. I was Snackpod. Um, the other day, uh, yesterday, in fact, I was cleaning out my ears with a cotton bud. Um, you know, the, in the like a Q-tip. Mm, you shouldn't and, do uh, that. But sure. It, well, exactly. You're not supposed to do that because uh, it actually like compacts the the wax in your mm. ear. Um but Noon listeners may know that Noon and I lived together for a couple of years, uh a little while back. And I walked into the bathroom one day and Noon was cleaning his ears with a cotton bud. and I was like, Noon, you shouldn't do that. It compacts the wax in your ear. And he was like he looked at me and smiled and he said, Yeah, but it feels so good. <laughs> and <laughs> forgotten that. It's funny that, <laughs> that stayed with you. And um sometime later, a couple of years later, like I don't know what the context was but noon walked in on me cleaning out my ears and he was like you shouldn't do that and I was like so outraged that you would say that to me uh and and I had I couldn't say anything at the time except yeah but it feels so good but it stayed with me always and I was like that this this outrageous hypocrisy cannot be allowed to stand but I didn't mm-hmm. know what I, what I could do about it and then yesterday when I was cleaning out my ears uh, I flashed back to that moment and I thought there is one thing I could do about it I could air this grievance out on air and, and and lay it bare for the, for the world to see let listeners know that this is what happens if you just take noon at his word all the time he's liable to contradict himself three years later and make you feel like a, a silly person so
0: absolutely this is
1: actually something similar happened
0: maybe a month or two ago zach messaged me and was like hey uh do you have a source on that thing that you told me about uh <laughs> being basically plastic uh, and like never leaving your bloodstream and i was like dude I'm pretty sure that was entirely shit that I was talking when I said that. Uh, I was living with a huge hippie, spending all of my time with hippies, uh, and this is—you w- can't trust that information that I'm giving you to uh, pass on to anyone else. But you listeners, you can trust everything I say on air.
1: <laughs> yes, moving on to our news podcast. Um... <laughs> yeah,
0: I promise I've got sources for everything that I'm going to say today. So. <laughs> True. All right. Um, um go on. Sorry, I just wanted to say. Uh, We have a little scaffolding for our our episodes and in the entree zach wrote cotton buds but he didn't write any notes for it and and i was looking over the notes and i was like hey uh, what's this entree and he was like it's a surprise i spent like half an hour last night like googling cotton news bud news i was like is this like is this has maybe weed been legalized and i haven't noticed and zach wanted to surprise me with it on air or something no 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 he just wanted to put me on uh, blast as if for- i would <laughs> learn that weed had been legalized before, <laughs> before you it does seem unlikely <laughs> Um, <laughs> okay, <laughs> it was a good um, mislead. Okay, but now let's get on to our actual news. onto
1: the onto the show. Okay, so um, let's kick it off with a little bit of fascist Australia, fascist Australia. Australia. More
0: so than a
1: bit. At, what's that? more than a bit
0: of fascist Australia? More it's than like a bit, a lot. Some it's extremely
1: like a, a one of the some of the most fascist Australia, yeah, <laughs> stuff that has happened lately. So as I'm sure listeners will be very familiar with. Um, In Victoria, over the last week, nine public housing towers were put into a police-enforced lockdown by the state government starting last Saturday, and this is what happens when we record a day early. (laughs) Um, So, you know, obviously the coronavirus cases have been increasing over the last few weeks, and the government has been slowly ramping up its response. Um, by shutting down like hotspot suburbs um, and telling people to stay home, and they you know can only go out for essential services and that kind of thing. Um, but of course, these public housing towers got a very different mm. response. Um, yeah, cops stationed outside your front door. These people were not allowed to leave their homes. They were given mm. no notice. Um, and we're we're talking about uh public housing towers in in and these are in uh flemington and north melbourne by the way um in uh in in melbourne but of so course they're there like, are,
0: like definitionally some of the most uh poor and vulnerable people in the state right like
1: yeah absolutely and i'll, I'll get into it in, shortly sure. but there's yeah, yeah. you know a history of racist policing specifically mm. uh, in, uh in and around those towers those towers yeah but so we are talking about public housing but there are as with all, almost all public housing, it's a mixture of private rentals and, and uh, government-supplied housing as well. So there are plenty of people in those towers that are just paying rent just like everybody else mm, in the neighborhood. Mm. And I'm, I'm in three three zero five one, which is one of the hotspot lockdown suburbs. You know, we were given plenty of notice. I'm still able to move around um, and go to the shops and do what I need to do. And I'm you know, a two-minute walk from one of these uh, yeah. housing towers. So, you know, the, the stark difference in response was pretty shocking. And I think uh, it basically is was an, a massive mistake from the government, Definitely, yeah. as we'll get into. Um, but so eight of those towers are now out from under a full police lockdown um, and are now just kind of under stage three restrictions like uh, the rest of Melbourne. Um, two of those towers returned no positive tests at all. Um, But there was one tower that had about 50 or actually over 50 positive tests return. And they're they're still under like a full police lockdown, still, you know, can't leave the home. Um, And they're going to be there to make it a full 14 day quarantine. Um, But so, okay, let's get into it. So cops, this is an ACAB podcast. I think we can all agree that cops sending Mm -hmm. in the cops, it's pretty much always a bad idea. You're guaranteed to get more violence than you would if you didn't send them in. they're guaranteed to escalate tensions. And we saw that happening very quickly. People trying to bring in suppliers, getting harassed. Um, There were a couple of violent arrests that happened. Mm. And as you mentioned, Noon, you know, the police have a history of discriminating against the very residents of these towers. So Victoria police actually settled a case brought by some African-Australian men. Um... What? I don't have the year of it here. It was it was relatively recent. It was in the last decade. Um, and around the time, some research into data from the police database showed that African men around Flemington and North Melbourne were roughly two and a half times more likely to have their interaction recorded by the police than wow. the rest of the population. Uh, and that data also showed that African men from the area committed significantly fewer crimes mm. than men of any other, uh, any other ethnicity. So it's textbook... Racist policing bullshit. Totally, yep. Um, And uh, listeners might know of the work of the Flemington Kensington Community Legal Centre, who uh, you know do great work on behalf of the community. And in response to this racist policing, they actually established the Police Accountability Project in the area. So, cool. We have like there are entire organisations set up in order to address the racist policing in these Mm, areas. mm. This is you know you have to see this punitive carceral police response to you know in in these towers as a a straight line uh, of you know it's it's of a part with the racist policing that has happened in Mm. happening in these Mm. areas over the last decades like this you know there's there's no way to separate those things out um so you know there these, these residents were locked down with no warning um Many of them went without food for over 30 hours before anything yeah. was able to get in, including uh, and medicine wasn't able to get in. Uh, people who needed in-home care weren't able to get it. Uh, That's right.
0: There was, a, I think, there were 30 NDIS. Um, recipients or something like that um, uh, throughout the towers who weren't able to get carers or any of that sort of stuff. I don't, I don't know if you're going to talk about it, but um, something that a lot of people have raised is issues about, like, drug abuse and so on. Or, like, sorry, drug users in the towers being forced into withdrawal. Um, uh, and I... Yeah, anyway.
1: Yeah, which would be an issue locking down... Like, doing a hard lockdown anywhere. Absolutely, that, absolutely. Know, like, the, but, yeah, the, I mean, these are the sort of medical... Uh, and like, problems that obviously weren't considered. Totally. Um, and you yeah, the I department of... Go on.
0: I was going to say, yeah, I, I didn't mean to talk about these towers specifically, just, like, that's another piece of um, uh, dangerous outcomes from this hard lockdown that presumably wasn't really considered when they decided to do it.
1: No, absolutely. There was like there was no consultation with the community about what their needs were. The cops were just sent in with absolutely no warning. Mm. And, you know, there were people caught up in this who didn't mm. even live in the towers or, yeah. you know, people who had no idea that they were coming home and found cops at their front door. Like
0: Yeah.
1: It's 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 genuinely shocking if you just picture being at home and having cops stationed outside your front door. Like especially if you're in in an area that has a history of violent policing. And you know, if a lot of the people in these towers have fled countries that have violent histories and who have been traumatized by state violence in mm, the past, mm. so you know, there, there, there's many reasons in which it's many reasons for why this is a, a fucked situation. But then, not only is it just kind of totally misguided, it was implemented so poorly. Mm. So we had the Department of Health and Human Services, great name, confiscating food deliveries that were organized by the community. When they started to get food into the buildings, finally they were delivering pork meals to these towns which have large Muslim populations. Uh, There were, like, these really depressing photos Mm. of these frozen meals put on, like, a piece of paper outside people's front doors as, like, the entire food delivery.
0: Random and shitty food as well. Like, some of them, it was, like, a box with... Only jam and white sugar, and then there was someone elsewhere who just had got like a bag of frozen veggies, and that was the only thing that their family got. Like, yeah, one uh, family got it's like uh, just one terrible. family
1: with like eight people got four sausage rolls for a 24 hour period or something. Fucking there hell. were like people getting wheat Bix with no milk, was another yeah, one that yeah. got um, uh, picked up on. Yeah, like, embarrassing, embarrassing shit. Um, and they have just they just did an absolutely awful job of communicating with the mm. residents as well. And a couple of days into the lockdown, the DHHS tweeted out, um, we need to get messages to people in public housing quickly. We have people sharing the information on site, but can you help on social media? Are you in a Facebook group with the members of these communities? Like, they were just uh, straight up like, yeah, we're there and we've trapped these people in their homes, but we, we can't, can't get talk information to them? To them? Yeah, like, yeah. I don't know. I like pretty shocking stuff, but the residents themselves very quickly organised and responded. Mm. Mm. A huge amount of reporting was coming uh, from inside the towers via various social media accounts. Um, keep giving live updates on everything that was happening, um, and I think it was, it was a friend of the show, Leah. Uh, said of one of the accounts it was just like a real trip going back through their twitter and it like is them just talking about everyday teenage girl shit and then suddenly it's like okay now i'm like having to report live on a police lockdown from inside my own home yeah just wild wild shit um some demands are released by a group called voices from the box who describe themselves as a coalition of residents family members and, and community um and uh, you know, so you know, communicating with the rest of the, <laughs> like the rest of Victoria and Australia, like this is mm-hmm. what's happening and this is what we want to happen. Um, and one of the other things that happened, one of the other kind of community responses that was amazing to see was how quickly government advice was was translated into mm-hmm. multiple languages. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that there was there, there was like an expert uh, in, interviewed in in an article I read about this who said that if the government had had to do that translation work, it would have taken months. Yeah, um, yeah, I'm sure yeah so you know it's and and, like this just shows like get the community involved get them like ask them what they need and what they can do for themselves before going straight to the police and you know you yeah anyway so the political response around this has been relatively predictable i suppose i mean so, on the one hand, you kind of you have conservatives who are tearing down Daniel Andrews because they believe that any form of like restrictions across the state is like economic murder, basically
0: the, watching the conservatives this last week has been pretty incredible as they mm. while well in the last couple of weeks really is they wildly fluctuate between. Dictator Dan is locking down versus these Africans need to be uh, surrounded by police at all times to, and then back to Dictator Dan. And like, That's it's just right. like, it's... So no. much hypocrisy. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Oh, yeah. uh, just, yeah. And, and like, meanwhile, you've got the and labor no rusted on... no between ons. them as well. No. And the, the sort of labor hacks, basic, like spreading a hashtag, I stand with Dan like, defending him from right-wing attacks as if, like, he's the person who needed protection at that time, He needed to be shielded from political attacks. Like, he has not done a good job over the last couple of weeks. The hotel quarantine system was a complete failure and uh, a stark warning of what happens if you privatise responses to public crisis. And then this lockdown, which, like... Time and again, you know, we see this government sort of leaning towards what seem to be socially positive stances, but then they have this reflex to reach Mm, for these mm. carceral responses in situations like this that they don't seem to be able to overcome. And it's just really depressing to see because, you know, we joke about people calling this the most progressive government in Australia, but it is. That's what we've got. And this is what they do.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. That's such a good point. Yeah. Yeah.
1: But as you say, Noon as well, there was like a racist response as well from the right wing, um, probably the most notable of which would be Pauline Hanson, and we didn't need to uh, read a quote from her. You can probably imagine what she was saying, but yeah, a lot yeah. of very tired uh, stereotypes about people living in towers. They're all alcoholics. They're all drug addicts. None of them can speak English, et cetera, et cetera. She said this on the Today Show, um, and then the, those comments got circulated and they like... Cancelled her regular appearance on the Today Show because she had a, like a regular slot. Yep. Um, and one of the funny things about this, I realized like when I was reading about this that I had conflated Sunrise and Today in my head. I really Which is entirely was reasonable.
0: Thing. I mean, they're essentially the same thing. Um, they're, they're even oh, visually very similar. Like if you.
1: Yeah. It, totally. And Pauline Hansen has been booted off both <laughs> of them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, she technically removed herself from sunrise after david kosh was like you said a slightly racist thing about uluru and fuck knows why he drew the line there yeah and then but was like i'm never coming back on this show um apologize for that impression um probably worth noting as well that before they retracted and like issued mm. an apology for Pauline Hansen's statement the today show tweeted out Clips of that segment twice, Uh, and the second time the caption was something like, "Oh, Pauline Hanson has said this thing. Did she go too far? As if like, I don't know. So fucking complicit these media organisations, and Pauline Hanson is now, of course, getting to whinge about being censored. Which, so you know, it's it's absolute red meat for One Nation voters. Sorry, go on.
0: I was just gonna say it's so transparently obvious that they love when people say racist shit on their show and then people get outraged about it and they get clicks and like the the double retweet is just like confirmation of that but like don't even bother pretending just be like, hey we got this wild person who says this wild <laughs> stuff watch the uh, check out this edgy content like just just go with it guys like
1: we gave Australia's most notorious racist a, a regular se- weekly segment on our show. And now we're if sorry she, it, she did a little a bit too much thing. racism. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> but so in amongst all of this kind of, I don't know, this, this totally like peripheral political debate between like liberal and labor hacks who were just not even addressing the issue at all and totally ignoring the people at the, like at the heart of this conversation. Mm. Um, the, communities in these towers pulled together and the communities from the, from the local areas pulled together in a way that I really think is super fucking inspiring. And it just, it, it's mm. one of these things of like, Bill Shorten, who he's the, the member for, for Maribyrnong and the Flemington towers are in his electorate and he was on the ground, um, uh, you know, contributing to the food distribution and that kind of thing. Um, and by all accounts, seems to have not tried to turn it into, you know, a, a political photo Huge op. And, I guess. Yeah, yeah. yeah um, so, you know, I guess good job, whatever. Um, but he did publish an opinion piece in the Herald Sun um, all about how the people in the towers are Aussie battlers who are taking one for the team, the Australian team. And a fair chunk of that article is defending people in the towers from the kind of. Uh, ignorant, racist, uh, mm, and like mm. drug user phobic stuff that Pauline Hansen was saying, and being like, these are just regular people who deserve respect. And that's a, obviously a very great sentiment. But this sort of framing of mm, like, mm. oh, geez, it's, I know it's tough, but the job has to be done. And you guys are heroes for doing it, as if the people in these towers had any choice in the matter totally, in the first yeah, place. Yeah. And I, and, uh, you know, I, I feel like it's important to recognize how incredible the community response was and how mm. inspiring it was to see people pull together like that without also trying to assuage, like, your own political guilt for having inflicted this on people or being part of a political party mm. Mm. or political alignment that has inflicted this on people. Um, and also, it, it's just about it, – it, it, it sidesteps the ethical discussion about whether or not it was okay to lock down those towers in the first place with police to to send cops in there. You you skip that discussion and you go straight to, oh, yeah, it's tough. It's tough for the residents, but they're heroes. Uh, Like, you know, just completely refusing to engage with Mm, whether or mm. not it was okay to have this kind of militarized response, which no other outbreak in Australia has received. But so... Like I said, incredible community response. There were, you know, uh, all the organizations on the ground were overwhelmed with donations, with volunteers. Um, The one organization that was doing amazing work is AMSA, which is the Australian Muslim Social Social Services Agency. And they are now actually completely taking over food deliveries to the remaining lockdown Mm, apartments mm. from the DHHS because they have been doing such a much better job they understand what the community needs yeah, and so yeah. they are able to deliver it to them they have community contacts they are like they they actually can talk to the people and ask them what they need um i'd also like to shout out rise for refugees and mutual aid se which is i think mutual aid southeast who, who are also doing great work um and yeah i mean this response just shows how capable these communities are of working under pressure, of looking after themselves. Mm. And I think gives a window into how different the government's response to this could have been here. Absolutely. If they hadn't sent in the police, but instead had gone to these various community groups that were already working with the people in the towers and asked them, okay, we we think that there's, and it's super intense cluster in one of these towers we need to do a really harsh lockdown at all of them if we need people to stay home and not literally leave their front door for the next week what needs to happen yeah. and AMSA, yeah. rise and mutual aid SE would have been able to say okay we know we need, we need to get culturally we need appropriate we food need, yeah, exactly yeah. uh we need to make sure that people are receiving a uh, like, the medical care that they need and not having to reuse needles on their diabetic children. Totally. And, And like,
0: we know someone on every floor of every one of these towers who's connected with their organisation or we can go to them and get out the word from within the community rather than, like, with uniformed goons and a bullhorn telling people they'll be arrested if they leave. Like, yeah, Yeah. yeah. No
1: one needs to get shoved or yelled at or told that they are wasting the police's time. No one needs to be triggered because of the trauma that they've experienced uh you know in their history so look uh extremely disappointing stuff from the victorian government on this which unfortunately seems to be becoming a bit of a trend over the course Mm, of this mm. pandemic um over the last few days cases have been continually rising as we know but Uh, That is with the caveat that we won't be feeling the effects of the reintroduced lockdown for uh, about another week or so. So, you know, the numbers are looking scary at the moment, but hopefully they come down. And, um, you know, I just hope that everybody who was locked down in those towers is doing as well as they can be, given the circumstances, uh, enjoying the first little bits of uh, regained freedom uh, and... You know, uh, but obviously that's not everybody and the situation is not over yet so uh, I'm sure that we'll be hearing more about it over the next week
0: thanks for that Zach um, yeah it's been such a big story and um, I think it's really worth getting some detail about it but uh, with our I think traditional or, or very well branded emotional whiplash it's now time for shitpost of, of the, the Week Uh, And this, we have some beautiful OC from OzPol shitposting. Uh, We we try to give shitpost of the week to uh, original content that we we can't always. Um, And this was one that came out of a thread. um, uh, Someone called Tom Westland on Twitter, at Tom Westland, um had new Australian flag suggestions and it was just like the normal Australian flag but in the top left instead of the Union Jack. There's that tweet from Professor Doherty who says Dan Murphy opening hours. I'm pretty sure we <laughs> talked about that a couple of weeks ago yeah, when, I think, when he tweeted it. In I think April.
1: we we talked about it for Positivity Corner. Yeah.
0: That's right, yeah, yeah. Um Yeah, that
1: was a real bright spot then and it's a real bright spot now.
0: Yeah, and and um there was a a thread about this um and there was a bunch of discussion about what we'd like to see on a flag and like you know, heavy caveat that obviously this is still a colonial flag or whatever, you know, we're not seriously suggesting this is a design. But um, <laughs> Carly Petiona made this incredible one, as suggested by the, the members of Shit Posting, where the stars on the Australian flag around, uh, with with the new tweet instead sort of the Union Jack, have been replaced by the shitty beers of each state and territory. Um, and it was like
1: a robust discussion... About what? Like Carly suggested this beer. concept, and then was like, "Okay, tell me what? Yeah, what's the correct shitty beer to represent every state?" And I got to say, I learned a lot reading that thread. I have never heard of Emu Export before, but now I right. know.
0: Um, I think I know about it from a Terry Pratchett book, which makes fun of it. Um, but yeah, the the one that I think really got people going was uh, uh, Cooper's not being there representing South Australia, and there was a bunch of discussion about shitty beer versus actually yeah. drinkable beer. Coopers um, is
1: clearly not shitty enough because we're talking about, you know, if New South Wales, it's two is new and Queensland, it's 4x gold. 4X, so those are your sort of, yeah, yeah, yeah. those, those, are your so gimmies. Coopers
0: really doesn't go in that in that uh, category. So, yeah, no, no,
1: it's something that will cost you, you know, at a Melbourne pub, 20 bucks a pint, easy. If you had to pay $20 for a pint of, of fucking VB, you'd be <laughs> pretty upset. Spion- um, but yeah, I, I just I, I love the detail really on edit. the yeah. on the Photoshop here as well because somebody suggested for New South Wales that it should just be a raw unpeeled oh no sorry for ACT that it should be a raw unpeeled onion. Mm-hmm. So on the Tui's new can there's a tiny little <laughs> raw unpeeled raw onion, onion in the surrounded of it as entirely well.
0: by the Tui's can yeah. And uh, um, the tiny
1: little bogues under the VB as well yeah. yeah. It's just it's an extremely accurate, good yeah.
0: yeah exactly it's geographically accurate. Th- I, I think something funny about this is that the like seeing this extremely ridiculous Photoshop job just illustrates how fucking bad the Australian flag <laughs> so is. So like, bad, like, like it's the, such a bad like, design. how did someone?
1: <sighs> I, I it, you're talking about it just a country looks so like, ugly? like, and our na- like our national anthem is ass as well. Just total butt. Like all of our, you know, our. Um... <laughs> International logo is now the that coronavirus corona, golden corona that's <laughs> yeah, true
0: yeah we uh, we have a, a nation of terrible branding
1: we all, we're like as as a nation we always do the most embarrassing thing possible that's uh, <laughs> true you know if this country wanted to regain some semblance of respectability across the world all they would have to do <laughs> is instate this flag as our official one because it is a fucking masterpiece and I want to say thank you to Carly Pettyone for putting putting it together. And I also want to say thank you for instigating such a beautiful community effort in pulling this together. Because Definitely. it was really like a crowdsourced meme. And Absolutely. And there's been some sort of rough and tumble times on the Osport shitposting Facebook group lately. We've had mm-hmm. a few sort of less than pleasant discussions and threads going on. And seeing people come together in order mm. to collectively produce this amazing shitpost... It just really warmed the cockles. So, I want to say thank you to everybody who contributed uh, your ideas for disgusting beer. What the fuck is West End Draft? Uh,
0: I'm not sure, but I would like to encourage everyone to enjoy responsibly during lockdown. (laughs) Okay, uh, why don't we move on now? We have...
1: Positivity Corner. (sighs) Yeah, this this one... (sighs) This one really brought me some joy. I tell you what. Um, I don't know if it's Andrew Laming or or Andrew Lamming. Um, are, we going with, are we going with Lamming? Let's go sure. with Lamming. It uh, doesn't matter. He's a liberal MP from Queensland. And people may know him from the time when he went on like an 11-hour commenting binge on Simpsons Against the Liberals and boasted about mashing lefties. Um, he's one of this country's many massive doofuses who it's just completely inconceivable how he ever ended up holding national office. Um, And he's obviously a complete piece of shit, but it has to be said, thoroughly fucking entertaining. One of those people that only ever pops up for doing something extremely hilariously humiliating. And one of the things
0: about him is his apparent... Completely unshakable self-confidence and I think that really comes out in this video is like the I don't know probably a lot of our listeners have seen uh, ContraPoints' video cringe and one of the points that she makes about that is that like we cringe at ourselves to kind of protect us from when other people cringe at us but there's absolutely none of that in Andrew Lemming at any point he has no self-awareness whatsoever or his only self-awareness is Mm. like oh yep i'm great so anyway oh, he's, no, to- he's,
1: it's the full like totally unearned confidence of mm. the mediocre australian white male on mm. full display mm. and you know say what you will it got him elected to fucking parliament this is a dude who while in elected office has done a handstand and drunk a beer on australia day which earned him a reprimand from the prime minister um, like you know The LNP, they're not sending us their best. Well, no, that's not true. They are. And this is what they've got. Um, But anyway, Andrew Lemming uh, put out a video on TikTok this week, which there's kind of, there's a lot to unpack in it. So I'll try to go through it pretty quickly. It's about 30 seconds of him attempting to do a series of pull-ups on a pull-up bar accompanied by a Megan the Stallion song, which opens with the line, I like a dick with a little bit of curve. Uh, But his pull-up motion... Call it Captain Hook. His pull-up motion... It's a really good song. His pull-up motion is extremely shallow. He's not actually doing pull-ups. He's just kind of jerking his body back and forth repeatedly.
0: Yeah, as people who actually exercise on the shit shitposting group pointed out, technically it's zero reps. It, no
1: reps. No reps in total. He's wearing uh, like jeans, a long-sleeve white business shirt, and a black puffy vest while he does this. The he's hanging off the pull-up bar backwards, which is it's especially notable because it almost installed. comes yep. off the door frame on his second like pseudo pull-up. Yep. Uh, and so he does this for like oh, twenty seconds or so, and then the song stops and the video keeps going, and he it's does, just like, like three like, or four
0: <laughs> non chin-ups. Yeah.
1: <laughs> and then he jumps down. <laughs> Off the pull-up bar, which causes the phone that's filming to, like, fall down slightly and change the angle. And then he (laughs) throws a peace sign at the camera and goes, yeah! And, (laughs) like, obviously me explaining this can never communicate the full glory of the video. And you absolutely need to go and watch this because it's...
0: It's some of the shittest posting uh, we've and this, seen in our year of doing this show it's it's it's, it's possibly
1: phenomenal. the shittest post from a politician that i've that that i've seen and this is why no politician should ever be allowed to have like a media department or any like pr people making their posts for them if you want to post on social media as a politician you have to do it your fucking self and embarrass yourself like everybody else <laughs> like Andrew okay Lenny. yeah yes
0: i like that <laughs> like, it's a good policy yeah yeah <laughs>
1: I, yeah, I don't want any of these fucking focus-tested tweets. I don't want you know some intern in the back of Adam Bant's office tapping away on Twitter like. This is, this is a bit of a
0: tangent, but one of my favorite things on Facebook is an ad. I think it stopped coming up now, um, but it was a sponsored ad. I'm pretty sure from Mark Dreyfus, who's a Victorian Liberal, uh, sorry Labor MP, and it, it was just a photo of him, and it, the the caption on the sponsored post was um, like. Christopher Pine was mean to me, or something. I don't think it was Christopher <laughs> yeah. Pine, but it was, some, it was I someone... I remember that and, one. <laughs> yep, that's the whole post, and it was up for, like, three or four months as, like, the main-sponsored post. Like, how the fuck did that poll uh, go that that but was he, the...
1: Those are the successful social media posts and politicians. Like, when are they going to yeah. learn? It's about authenticity, guys. Come mm. on. Get on your black puffy vest, do a bunch of fake exercise, put on a song With that a that you clearly song, have never you... listened to and don't understand <laughs> yeah. the words to... <laughs> <laughs> and embarrass yourself on social media like everybody else. That just really brought a fucking smile to my face. I've watched that video Absolutely. like twenty times, and um, you know, I just I want, want to make a parody record. of it. It, yeah. it. like I feel it, it's I felt inspired. No, I just, like, to, I, I just want
0: to. I didn't. I just want to. just gonna it. do the
1: same. I thing. just want to do a reenactment because it. Just I mean, I guess so that's fun. what
0: TikTok is for, right? You all just do exactly. the same dance and the same song. You can. I'm gonna, gonna make a TikTok bad-
1: specifically in order to do a remake of this video.
0: I've got a concept for it. Can you actually fall off at some point and then stand up and go, yeah, (laughs) (laughs) we we can workshop it. We'll workshop it. Cool. Thanks for that uh, very positive positivity corner, Zach. uh, uh, Yeah, some lovely news. Um, And now we're going to move on to our main course. And for mains, we're having constitutional custard. Um, Yeah, I wanted to talk a little (laughs) bit about constitutional recognition and... um, uh, it, this is because a few weeks ago, Lydia Thorpe, uh, who is the new Green Senator who's replacing Richard Di Natale, came out against the uh, First Nations voice to Parliament. And this was a proposal for a constitutionally enshrined body for First Nations people that would advise Parliament. And it came out of the Uluru Statement from the Heart. Uh, which was uh, made in 2017 after about six months of consultation uh, by a government body called the Referendum Council. And this was a group of 16 people, not all of whom were Indigenous, who were appointed by the then Prime Minister uh, Turnbull and uh, also then opposition leader Bill Shorten. And the idea for the referendum council was to come up with a proposal to amend the constitution. Hence the name referendum council, because to amend the constitution you need to do a, a referendum. And this would be, uh, in theory, to have this body that would be more permanent and more important than a legislated advisory body. Uh, body. So this would be one that's like part of the fundamental law of Australia. Uh, some it couldn't be legislated
1: a, away by like a, ch- a, a successive government exactly exactly
0: yeah um and yeah so the the uluru statement from the heart was pretty big we've talked about it many times on the show and um yeah it, it has been one of the big things it's kind of be one
1: of the main things driving the conversation around like uh the australian state's official relationship to Definitely. indigenous people yeah it's kind of at the center of, of those conversations these days
0: yeah, and so anyway, Lydia Thorpe uh, in the last week or so, yeah, came out against it. And there's this hilarious article I found from the Daily Mail. Um, where oh no! It, yeah, it keeps. I don't using think we've ever quoted
1: like, a Daily Mail article on the show before. Uh,
0: you should look this one up. It's impressively biased. Um, we've probably using... quoted
1: articles that Daily Mail articles have plagiarised from, though. Mm, so mm. it's basically the same thing.
0: They say stuff like, Indigenous leaders have slammed Thorpe. And um, that's like basically the full first page is just like lots of stuff from pro recognition people, blah, blah, blah. And then at the end, it says this The first Indigenous woman elected to the Victorian Parliament last year declared to Harry Potter actress Miriam Margoyles she didn't res- regard herself as Australian, <laughs> which is a hilarious way to phrase she didn't interview. Um, <laughs> Miriam Margoyles played Professor Sprout, by the way. Anyway, and a she's video. a treasure. I don't identify as being Australian. It's a concept that's been imposed on our people since we were invaded, she told the Almost Australian documentary, which aired last month on the ABC. The colonizers came and set up the colony which they now call Australia. Mass genocide occurred. Ms. Thorpe, a high school dropout and grandmother, is one of the most <sighs> radical figures to enter Australian Parliament.
1: What the fuck has that got to do with anything okay, Some I mean, I understand, journalism. I understand what they're trying to insinuate with high school dropout, which also you know. Props to you, Noon, as well. Thanks, high school, yeah, yeah. school dropout, and look at you now.
0: Yeah, look at I'm you now. I'm one of the most radical figures on OzPol but
1: <laughs> I'd say the most radical, 250-ish weekly listeners. But Grandma, what? Like, what are they trying? To, what are they insinuating there? Is it like because she's relatively, like, she'd be a relatively yeah. young grandma? Is that what they're like?
0: I guess so. I don't know. Like the whole the whole article was just designed to be like all black people think uh, the voice is a good idea and also Miss Thorpe is a high school dropout and doesn't.
1: And she's doesn't the most radical person yeah, in yeah. Australian politics. Um,
0: so anyway... Uh- this week, on July 9th, the Warriors of the Aboriginal Resistance released a two-page statement that partially agreed with Lydia Thorpe and uh, opposed the proposal for the voice to Parliament. And I wanted to go through this statement sort of piece by piece and look at their position, um, because I thought it was a really good statement, it was really interesting, drawn a lot of stuff, and, um, you know, Zach and I are both white, and it's not really our place to decide if the voice is a good idea or not. Um, and that's kind of why I wanted to go through this letter, because I want you listeners to get words from you know the people whose issue this is um but i also just wanted to acknowledge that there's a big dispute about this within aboriginal communities i definitely don't mean to suggest that either position about the voice or about recognition is like universal by any means um and just a a random stat um an official survey by Recognize Australia, the government body set up to do constitutional recognition, found eighty-seven percent support for constitutional recognition amongst uh, Aboriginal people, while a survey done by Indigenous X found that the support topped out at around thirty percent. Um, so wow! Wow! That's a fifty-seven percent difference in how many people approve between these two surveys, and I'm sure the the actual number is somewhere in between. But um, yeah, so I, I just wanted to start off by. Yeah, acknowledge. We could do a full as, uh,
1: hour on breaking down the methodology behind those surveys. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'll actually put a
0: link to this Indigenous X article about the survey because it's really interesting. They ask a bunch of different questions and they they very open with their numbers and so on. So yeah, people can check that out. Okay. So um media statement, July ninth, twenty twenty. Warriors of the Aboriginal Resistance war stands with incoming Green Senator Lydia Thorpe in her stance against constitutional recognition. War opposes a push for constantly entrenched voice to Parliament, one of the three proposals of the Uluru Statement. So. The other two proposals from the Uluru Statement were a Makarata commission, and uh, we talked about this in the Makarata and Cheese episode a couple months ago, Uh, but Makarata is a Yongnu word, which is often translated uh, into English as treaty, Um, but according to an academic Merakoyowai Ganamba Stubbs, um, she says it has many layers of meaning. Makarata literally means a spear penetrating usually the thigh of a person that has done wrong, so they cannot hunt anymore, they cannot walk properly, they cannot run properly, to maim them, to settle them down, to calm them. That's Macarada, And I think, um, you know, that view of what that word means maybe should inform the idea of a Makarrata commission a-, a bit more than the white word treaty, you know? Um, I li-
1: that is a really funny, like, discrepancy in interpretation. Like, yeah, no, yeah. it just means treaty. It's like, mm. No, yeah. it means stabbing you because <laughs> you're
0: a fucking murderer or whatever, you know? Like, yeah. Uh and the other thing that um, the Uluru statement uh, wanted was a truth telling process of some sort, uh, and it seems that actually Lydia Thorpe isn't fully opposed to constitutional recognition. Um, she just thinks that a treaty needs to come first, basically. And um, as I'll point, uh, as the worries of the Aboriginal resistance say later on, they're not like wholeheartedly endorsing lydia's proposals they're just agreeing that the voice is not a great idea so anyway Mm. all right statement continues this body as referendum council co-chair mark Liebler has admitted would only have advisory powers yet another advisory body will fail to enable aboriginal self-determination in any real or meaningful way pakana lawyer michael mansell argues that it will in fact entrench aboriginal people's position as merely advisors to the australian parliament about our own affairs quote The advisory body would not have any say over its own composition, its role, function, and powers, Mansell has said. These would be matters entirely for the parliament. And this is actually, weirdly, a talking point of pro-constitutional recognition conservatives, right? They'll be like, you know, because a lot of conservatives like have a huge hard-on for the constitution and they'll be like oh it's so drastic what what if we get the model wrong or whatever and the conservative response is like don't worry we're only going to change the constitution to say there must be an advisory body and then the parliament can figure out the details right so this point that war is making and that mansell is making that the advisory body would be basically completely uh, pointless and not have any power is a positive point in the from the point of view of the people who are proposing it mm. uh, and as war points out yeah, that's out, pretty it, telling yeah it, the the body will be entirely subject to the whim of the government of the day right so um it, yeah it, it, like it could be really functional for one term of government and then be replaced by like two people who the prime minister likes or what they say or whatever mm. um, and I, I actually looked up this article from mansell and i'll quote it more um as we go uh yep yeah. Okay, so the statement continues. The voice is being falsely marketed as a model for reform, which came out of a grassroots movement, when in reality is the brainchild of Noel Pearson and conservative constitutional lawyers. Pearson proposed the voice model in 2014. The government-sponsored process by which Aboriginal people supposedly chose the voice as our preferred reform model has also been represented in very misleading ways. War members were first-hand witnesses to this process, from the preliminary meeting held by the Referendum Council in July 2016 in Melbourne to the Regional Dialogues and then the National Convention in May 2017. It is our view that the entire process was highly curated and controlled, and that support for The Voice was a predetermined outcome from the get-go. Meetings were by invitation only, and it has even been alleged that the Referendum Council misrepresented the views and decisions of Regional Dialogues, including the Hobart and Dubbo meetings. Hmm. I'll quote from Michael Mansell uh, from a different article. Take the Sydney meeting called by Social Justice Commissioner June Oscar held prior to Gama, uh, which was when the... I think the statement was sort of finalised, but... uh, Attendance was strictly limited to invited supporters of a constitutionally entrenched advisory voice. No one who might have pointed out flaws in the model or that hopes of the referendum were unrealistic was invited. And I've talked before on this show about community consultation being fundamentally a process designed to ignore the things... That the, the communities being actually consulted want. to say, yeah, and the you know I, I had that experience from doing enviro work, um, but the same tactics are used to, uh, yeah, steamroll indigenous and non-indigenous communities when government bodies um, want to get a particular outcome from consultation
1: or corporations, right. as we saw with the with Rio Tinto.
0: Yeah, totally. That's a really good point. All right, the statement goes on. There was a walkout by a number of delegates at the National Convention and others have said they felt attendees were rushed, cajoled, uh, rushedly cajoled into supporting the voice. We believe that the process was deeply flawed and that the supposed people's mandate for the voice was manufactured. It is true that some Aboriginal people support the voice model, but there are also many who do not. And um, I uh, looked up, I was trying to find some details about these issues at the convention, and uh, I got a quote from Jenny Munro, who was one of the New South Wales delegates uh, who walked out. And she said, uh, It's not a dialogue, it's a one way conversation. Every time we try and raise an issue, our voices are silenced. They talk about respect inside this room, they don't show respect. I've asked the question in there how does our sovereignty remain intact when we go into the white man's constitution? We've chosen to walk away from this debate and this dialogue today because it's not a debate, and they're not looking at any alternative options other than the Noel Pearson roadmap. And like Native Title, that will prove to be an abject failure. Um, and yeah, yeah, there was a, uh, some other quotes from some other uh, elders and delegates who had similar objections. Um, it uh, just and seems then- to, like,
1: uh, for, like that makes it really sound like the entire concept is just completely at odds with the idea of meaningful representation mm. of Indigenous people because, I mean, yeah, the entire idea of it is to bend a certain section of the colonial project in order to make room for, like, an advisory body or whatever or a certain number of representatives from the Indigenous community, but that is not how, like, leadership and community works yeah. for yeah. Aboriginal people. Like, it's it's still ultimately it's 99.9% colonial government and then, I I mean, that's what these, that's what these, uh, comments are really making it sound like and Mm, like, mm. it sounds like even the process of establishing this theoretically representative body is totally, like it's, it's like it's. It makes it seem like a PR exercise,
0: really. Absolutely, and the next line from the statement I think actually sums that up really nicely. The voice campaign is feeding our people false hope of the power and potential of glorified advisory body. I think that's exactly it. It's false hope of the power and potential, right? Like the it's being presented as this thing that might have a huge impact, but in practice, it's not. And this is my you know little white Marxist insert. The the whole idea that somehow the Constitution helps people. Who live in that country is very silly like if it did america would probably be like a wonderful egalitarian utopia but like you know the constitution was in place while slavery existed for a very long time like it, it turns out constitutions in general are basically pointless like mm. yeah uh, and here's from mansell again uh from a different article. Those who promote the model, from Noel Pearson to Megan Davis, uh to constitutional expert and to me, all state that there's nothing to fear from this body. You can say that again. It's not even clear who the body would advise. Unless a government or political party seeks advice, the body will be singing in the wind. Uh, I think that's a really good point. And like, yeah, this is what I was saying about like the const the, the, the conservative talking points basically being like, don't worry, it won't do anything. Um yeah. Okay, the statement goes on. For instance, one of the arguments put forward in favour of The Voice is that by entrenching the body in the constitution, the federal parliament could not abolish the body at its whim like they did with the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Commission, ATSIC. This is simply not true. The constitutional provision proposed by the main proponents of The Voice would still allow parliament to dismantle and reassemble the body whenever and however it sees fit. Depending on the government of the day, one day it could be something like ATSIC, and the next it could be a hand-picked group like Abbott's Indigenous Advisory Council. Um... And just for a bit of context there, ATSIC was a body created by the Hawke government in 1919. It was around for about 15 years, and then it was abolished by the Howard government in 2005 for a, a variety of reasons, including corruption and multiple rape allegations against the chairperson. Um, but Fucking it hell. was. Uh, already not effective before then, it was largely controlled by non-indigenous folks somehow. And according to Amanda Vanstone, who was for some reason the member for uh, Indigenous Affairs, the minister for Indigenous Affairs, oh my God, she's just such a, a piece of sentence. shit. Yeah, it is. Um, but she said it did not serve the Indigenous community well. Um, yeah. So anyway, and the Indigenous Advisory Council was created by Tony Abbott and led by Nigel Scullion. And I had a look at their report for. It still exists, by the way. Uh, Scott Morrison is still being advised by them. Uh, and I had a look at their report for 2018, um, which was released last year. So like the previous year's report, um, and 90% of it was like we met with each other and talked, and it was very productive. Um, but it's a six-page report, and there's only one action. In that whole thing that they claim to have taken, which was to make a submission to a government inquiry, and they're also oh like, God. "and we received several letters," but like this is like extremely self-congratulatory report about they've talked to each other about how there's problems. Anyway, so that's just a, a little tiny history lesson on some of the advisory bodies that,
1: uh, yeah, that Walt have come and about. gone, which this one is going to be super different from.
0: Uh-huh, because it's going to be in the Constitution. Yay. Okay, so um, war goes on. Grassroots Aboriginal opposition played a major role in the demise of the multimillion dollars government-funded and corporate-sponsored Recognize campaign. The Voice campaign has tried to distance itself from recognise, but is fundamentally more of the same. War believes that the Voice campaign is attempting to piggyback on grassroots Aboriginal activism. We have seen in recent weeks where some have attempted to link their case for a voice to the Black Lives Matter protests. No one is marching down the street chanting, What do we want? Another advisory body. When do we want it? When the government feels like holding a <laughs> referendum. <laughs> Which is just a great bit of snark in this otherwise extremely like straight-faced uh, like tear-down of the proposal.
1: Uh, That's part of what I love about war is that they are, aside from everything else, extremely entertaining.
0: Yeah. Uh, So listeners, uh, probably a lot of you remember Recognize, um, it was really big and it was started in 2012 uh, by Julia Gillard after a report from the Expert Panel on Recognizing Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Peoples in the Constitution. And like, the name gives it away, right? Like they knew what they wanted to find before they started. And like, that has continued to 2020 and the community consultations before the voice right like the there was the referendum council who did it who were asking oh what do you want our referendum for constitutional recognition to be and like obviously there's no space there for saying we don't like constitutional recognition is not a priority anyway yeah there was a lot of opposition to recognise from radical Aboriginal activists. And I was really engaged with this at the time because um, it was when I was doing Enviro shit. I was working at Friends of the Earth and Lock the Gate, and I was going to like Enviro conferences like SOS and Beyond Coal and Gas Conference. Sorry, that's Beyond Coal and Gas Conference, not a Coal and Gas Conference. Um, and Excellent. the general cons- no worries. the general consensus was that constitutional recognition was basically a, a colonial... Game Right. That would provide no positive outcomes, but might potentially cut off anti-colonial legal approaches, such as like basically suing the Queen for breaking British laws about settling in lands that were already occupied. Right. Like... Mm uh i don't want to go into it in a whole lot of detail but like terra was an important legal principle for the british colonists because they weren't allowed to settle if it wasn't terra so they had to ignore all of the black settlements and like civilization that was here um So, yeah, there was a lot of opposition to recognise. And um, this is an article that Celeste Little wrote in 2015 um, and starts off with this sarcastic remark. If there was one thing we needed more of in the discussion on constitutional recognition for Indigenous people, it was the centering of voices of wealthy, conservative, white men. Um, And she goes on a lot about how Andrew Bolt has been um, quoted a lot. And she goes... "Um, uh, these are the very people who a referendum on constitutional recognition is going to affect the least, and therefore they are undeserving of further platforming while there is an unacknowledged wealth of critique and argument from the Indigenous community on this topic. Mm. The ABC, through casting Bolt as the opposing voice, and New South Wales politician and Wiradjuri woman Linda Burney as the supporting voice, has again played into the trope that constitutional recognition is a black versus white issue, with mm. black people completely supporting it and white people being the ones who need convincing. I personally have, like many other Aboriginal writers, expressed several times that this understanding is far from being the truth of the matter. We have entire sections of our community opposed, from the Aboriginal nationalist movements to the pro-treaty activists and finally to a- Aboriginal conservatives who believe it's unnecessary.
1: And she's Celeste, really good.
0: She is. She's such a good writer. And it's, it's like, I think impressive that she, as a radical leftist basically um still acknowledges that they are aboriginal conservatives who find this unnecessary from the opposite point of view of her i think that's just you know it's all yeah, yeah a sign well, of maturity and like confidence in her stance that she can acknowledge that or whatever totally
1: but the, the, I, I think that also gets to the heart of what um and it's kind of what i was trying to get at before maybe didn't articulate and probably will fail mm. to articulate now but the, the this whole thing seems to really just flatten aboriginal identity and perspectives Mm, into mm. this monolith that either and and as she says like even from like a liberal perspective like the abc like what they've done is set up this argument as if it's between like racists and indigenous people when in fact there's obviously a massive diversity of opinions and if you're talking about like establishing an advisory body to the government like how like how could a single body ever incorporate the views of mm, mm. every single like four hundred like,
0: nations right, right. like should be you, like we have or an or whatever, entire
1: yeah. government in order to do that for uh, you know the rest of the country and you know that supposedly yeah. uh, represents indigenous people as well, so uh, the idea that oh yeah we'll just we'll we'll, ha- we'll tack on this little thing and that'll be that'll represent all of you. <laughs> is just uh yeah it feels super misguided mm, but mm. yeah i i found that um insight in in terms of like even sort of well-meaning leftists kind of being like no but you know like it's only racists that are opposed to this good thing is yeah. massively like erasing so many different um indigenous perspectives on the issue absolutely um
0: We're running a little long. I kind of wanted to get into sovereignty a bit more here, aboriginal nationalism, but it's not necessarily super important for the um, rest of this statement. So maybe we can do that another week. But um, uh, yeah, anyway... uh, The statement goes on, furthermore, the fact that mining companies like Rio Tinto and BHP have thrown their weight and money behind the voice campaign is a clear indication that it is not a grassroots movement. We must always question the motives behind the words and actions of those who have taken so much from us, including the likes of multinational mining corporations. And as we've been covering recently, Zach, Rio actively destroys indigenous sovereignty every single day. And so does BHP. They've just not been in the news the last couple yeah. months, and like, and not just t- when they're
1: doing extremely obvious shit, blowing, like up, blowing yeah. up. Their their very like, business model isn't is, in t- is in t- like they are the tip every of the cent of their sphere. profit comes
0: yeah every cent of their profit comes from destroying Aboriginal yes. land and Aboriginal songlines and Aboriginal communities um, yeah and no like, it's fucking
1: t- perverted it's so perverted that that they would be invited to have an opinion on this in the first place. Yeah, yeah. It's just fucking Tony Abbott
0: was also a huge proponent of recognize, and, like, it, like...
1: If that's not a fucking red flag, I don't know how much more clearly it could be expressed.
0: (laughs) I'm not sure there's anything that Rio and Abbott agree on that I would agree on. I mean, I'm... Probably there's some stuff, but it would be hard to find. All right. Anyway, the statement goes on. We are also concerned that the Voice campaign has attempted to shut down debate by falsely portraying Aboriginal opposition to their model as misguided, misinformed, and as lateral violence. War maintains our right and the right of all Aboriginal people to speak out against agendas which we believe to be detrimental to Aboriginal interests and to speak up for models of genuine self-determination. War also acknowledges the sources of authority as mandated through original laws of the land that have been upheld and practiced for thousands of years. If the conversation is about models for reform which could deliver real empowerment to Aboriginal people, there are other models that, while far from perfect, would have much more substantial and effective than uh, yet another advisory body. Sorry, would be much more uh, substantial. As Mansell and Thorpe have put forward, other models worthy of consideration include a treaty which would hand back all vacant crown lands, provide for one Aboriginal senator for any, from each state, be guaranteed 3% of the gross domestic product, and a national elected Aboriginal body with lawmaking powers." This isn't an endorsement from more of these other models, but an acknowledgement that there are better alternatives to a toothless advisory body. And I really like this. It really resonated with me as like a shitty bourgeois Marxist, right? Like they're saying, look, we don't think a treaty or 3% of GDP reparations or uh, lawmaking body as opposed to voice, which is not a lawmaking body is necessarily going to radically improve things or like change things but they will improve things significantly for some people and that they're much more worth pursuing than this phantasm of constitutional recognition and don't want to nerd out too much about it but this is really good materialism i think from war (laughs) Uh, they're being materialistic Mm, about mm. what the actual outcomes are going to be as opposed to this purely idealistic idea of constitutionalism as, like, a fundamental way of making change. And it makes perfect sense to me that the most materialistic of all groups, profit-hungry mining companies, are supportive of an idealistic type of anti-colonialism, right? Like, because they know it's idealistic, it's not going to actually affect their profits, right? Because if it did, they would be coming down heavy on it like a ton of bricks, like they do Mm. with sovereignty movements. Yeah. As
1: as, as War say, like, (laughs) why... Why would they ever support anything that would affect meaningful change? Actually help,
0: yeah. So that's the end of the statement from war. And as I said, I was surrounded by a lot of anti-recognized sentiment when that was happening. But by the time the Uluru Statement from the Heart came out, I was basically disengaged from activist circles and unfortunately also basically from the First Nations communities that I've been working with um, in those roles. And from the outside, the Statement from the Heart seemed much more like grassroots and real than recognized. You know, it wasn't I organized by that. Julia Gillard. Yeah. And no, like, and they did have, was...
1: like, they had these, as you say, you know, very well-publicized community consultation meetings.
0: Yeah, and it was uh, a group of 250 elders or delegates at Uluru. One thing that actually I discovered while researching for this episode was that the traditional owners of Uluru were like, hey, can you not put Uluru on that it's not really, oh, really? an Uluru statement and the, the people who drafted the statement were like oh yeah we heard about that but we didn't think it was a big deal uh, so that's kind of cooked that's but... a
1: great great foot to get off on
0: <laughs> Yep. and look I, I'm definitely coming into this with an agenda and so I wanted to finish off with uh, a statement from someone else with an opposing point of view and this was an article in the conversation by Danny Larkin and Amy McGuire and they said this: We agree as lawyers that the treaty making—that only treaty making can fundamentally shift the foundations of a legal system built on dispossession and denial of First Nations sovereignty. Where we diverge from Thorpe is in our view that the Voice to Parliament can be a pragmatic first step in the deeper reform process Australia needs. So yeah, I—I don't know. I don't mean to suggest that there's monolithic opposition to the Voice, but the criticisms of it raised by Thorpe and by War are, in my opinion, both substantial and important. Um. And, yeah, I would really encourage all listeners, especially white listeners, to, yeah, really think about this stuff and try and get some diverse views about it and not accept the apparent consensus on it that that's being presented by, like, the ABC and the Parliament, for example.
1: Yeah, and it's definitely in the interests of government and media to simplify these conversations and as yeah. you say like flatten these perspectives mm. but i think there's also an impulse and um i feel it often as somebody who's engaged in progressive politics and leftist spaces and activism um but is somebody who occupies a power of a the position of basically complete privilege like mm, mm. if it's like um, whatever the opposite of intersectionality is I have sit at the intersection of like every possible privilege you can have, right? And so a lot of the process of like trying to become uh better at having these conversations and recognizing that privilege and actually mm. trying to, you know, contribute to uh, a more equitable society is learning to listen to and accept the perspectives and voices of marginalized and oppressed people, mm. right? Mm. But those aren't all the same as we've discussed, there are many different indigenous perspectives. There are many different feminist perspectives there. Like, I feel like when I first started out trying being like, Oh, okay. I'm realizing that I had, that I hold a whole lot of like unconscious, uh, bigotry and I need to consciously work to undo that. I'm going to listen to what women tell me about feminism, for example, but then sort of quickly realizing that just Listening to and accepting uncritically everything that you're told Mm, mm. by uh, a member of of like a marginalized or oppressed group is actually not a good way to operate because what happens when a feminist comes up to you and says, Trans women aren't women, and and you're like, Uh, and and like, you're like, Oh no, I'm a good male feminist, I listen to women, so I'm going to believe that uncritically, well, then you're in trouble, and so like. Mm. Part, I think, and a really difficult part of being a good ally is acknowledging that you never get to a place where you have the correct position and you just get to Mm. stay there. You Mm. have to think critically and make decisions for yourself all the time. And that's really scary and difficult because you're putting yourself in the position of like, I might put a foot wrong here. I might make a mistake and I might get shattered down for it. And that is just, you know, and I'm not saying that that's unfair. I'm just saying that that's a part of totally like that's a part of the journey and i think that that like complicating this discussion around what is meaningful uh like forward movement for indigenous people Mm, on this mm. land means actively engaging with it and listening to different perspectives and at the end of the day it's uncomfortable because we you know, are told not to insert ourselves into these discussions and we definitely mm. shouldn't be centering ourselves or our feelings or acting as if our thoughts are more important than those of Indigenous people, but you, that doesn't absolve you from having to critically engage with it and actually form your own totally. opinion. And that yeah, should be yeah. and must be informed by the opinions and perspectives of Indigenous people on this issue. Mm. But like at the end of the day you still it's making up your mind is still your job it's not someone it's not an indigenous person's job to like create your position for you and then you just sign on to it like mm. uh, i that's something that I've been thinking about a lot lately, and I think that that this is a really good example of how messy and complicated those conversations are and how there's no easy way to be supportive of this stuff and like there it's gonna be uh, that discomfort is a necessary part of it and it's an ongoing process. So, you know, and, and I like think yeah, you and, and I like, try to acknowledge that, like we don't try to present ourselves as people who hold the correct position. Like I hope mm, that we can mm. admit when we're wrong. And like, I remember we discussed constitutional recognition um, and the Uluru statement, like early on mm, in the podcast, like in mm. a, in our first like fifth or sixth episode or something like that, I think. I'd be uh, I reckon that, I probably back then would have been much more sort of blandly supportive of it because it does on the face of it sound so good, as you've said. Yeah,
0: yeah. And like, I still, I mean, I've, I kind of have made up my mind about it, if you know what I mean, um, even though I'm willing to keep taking more information about it and so on. But like, I'm not really sure what that would mean if the referendum happened tomorrow. Like, I might be opposed to it, but does that mean I don't, like it's better for it to not happen right like mm. it's it it might not be productive but is it going to be harmful and like as a white person should i be actively saying no we shouldn't recognize indigenous people in the constitution just cuz i think it's like pointless and not that productive like does that mean i should stop it from happening or like anyway yeah it, it's a complex issue and there's uh, there's no real answer Okay, well I think that's just about done we th- run a little bit over But um, thank you listeners for joining us I hope you've enjoyed this episode um, And we enjoy having you listen to us And if you'd like to support the show, you can You can go to patreon.com forward slash OzPolSnackPod And for a dollar a month You get a monthly bonus episode Plus you can join our Discord You can ask us questions uh, You uh, For $10 or more You get a snacky treat um, It's not actually food, don't worry um, Yeah, so hot uh, <laughs> hop on patreon uh hop on uh facebook and go to shit shitposting uh join the group uh answer the questions or you won't get let in mm. and, and leave us
1: some reviews if you can
0: we would love some reviews we haven't had any for a couple of weeks we had that big push for our one year anniversary and we got a bunch of them so that's really lovely but you know there's still people listening who haven't reviewed so, so please do it we'd um, love that
1: thank you so much for Sign off yet zach Th- thank thank you so much for t- tuning in <laughs> Fuck cups, crunch, crunch. <laughs>